This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. You found us. This is indeed The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett. Coming to you from our blowtorch flagship station, AM 740, Zuma Radio in Toronto, Canada, 50,000 watts. We've got a great show for you tonight. First of all, hey, welcome to summer. Uh, my boys uh, received a tent, a four- or five-man uh, tent, folding tent for Christmas a few years ago from their uncle. And so the last two nights, uh, we camped out in the backyard up in Thornhill. And uh, I, I don't know where what it's like where you are, but up here in these here parts, it's been pretty cool at night. And this is one of those tents where the sides are just mesh. Just like two screen doors, and they allow the breeze to flow through. It, it breathes really nicely, but it, it's cool. So I, anyway, I piled the pillows and the blankets and the comforters in there and a, and a computer. And the boys ate popcorn and ice cream and watched uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy over the course of two evenings. And there I, there I was sleeping on unpopped popcorn kernels. I felt, what was that fairy tale, the, uh, the princess and the pea or something, where she could feel the pea under the mattress? It's amazing how one popcorn kernel can cause so much irritation. Uh, anyway, I woke uh, yesterday morning and this morning feeling each and every one of my 50 years. Uh, took some Tylenol. I'm just not cut out for camping anymore. It's that cold, hard ground. Got to get me an air mattress or one that doesn't leak anyway. And of course, within minutes of uh, of the boys falling asleep, I have a foot in my face or an elbow in my ribs. Of course, they slept like babes. I slept like a baby, too. I cried all night, and then I wet the bed. No, I did not. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the boys loved every minute of it, and uh, uh, truth be told, I loved every minute of it, too. Summer's also a great time to catch up on uh, reading, and July usually sees a, a spate of uh, great books in this field in which I toil. Conspiracies, the paranormal, UFOs, ETs, lost civilizations... Uh, in fact, for you lovers of ancient history and unsolved mysteries of centuries past, New Page Books 
has just released Lost Secrets of the Gods, the latest evidence and revelations on ancient astronauts, precursor cultures, and secret societies. It's an anthology, and it features original essays by the likes of Jim Mars, Nick Redfern, Thomas Brophy, and my guest tonight, who's contributed an essay where he weighs in on one of my favorite topics, the Great Giant Conspiracy. The Great Giant Conspiracy posits that a number of archaeological digs across North America and elsewhere in the world have uncovered the skeletal remains of hundreds of, well, giants, humanoids, entire tribes of them, seven, eight, nine feet tall, even taller. The discoveries of these giant skeletons, the theory goes, were suppressed, primarily by institutions like the Smithsonian. Now, a couple of months ago, I had Richard Dewhurst on the program. He's the author of The Ancient Giants Who Ruled America. It's a well-written and meticulously researched book, and in the end, I think Dewhurst makes a pretty damn compelling argument that there were upon this earth various races of these giants. The Bible, of course, is replete with tales of giants, but so too are newspaper accounts, like the New York Times. If you go back a century and dig deep into the archives, you'll discover that the newspaper was reporting on just such discoveries. Tonight, we're going to revisit the topic of big buried secrets, giant skeletons, and the Smithsonian. In fact, that's the title of, a, of an essay written by my guest, Micah Hanks. And Micah has been on this program several times before. He's a writer, researcher, lecturer, radio personality, whose work addresses a variety of areas, including history, politics, scientific theories, and unexplained phenomena. Open-minded but skeptical in his approach, his research has examined a broad variety of subjects over the years, incorporating interest in cultural studies, natural science, and scientific anomalies, and the prospects of our technological future as a species as influenced by science. He's the author of several books, including his 2012 New Page book release, The UFO Singularity, as well as Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, The Search for Sentient Intelligence from Other Worlds, and Reynolds Mansion, An Invitation to the Past. Hanks is an executive editor of Intrepid Magazine and consulting editor-contributor for Fate Magazine and the Journal of Anomalous Sciences. He also writes for a variety of other publications, including UFO Magazine, Mysterious Universe, and New Dawn. Hanks has appeared on numerous TV and radio programs, including this program, Coast to Coast, of course, Whitley Strieber's Dreamland, National Geographic's Paranatural, the History Channel's Guts and Bolts, CNN Radio, and many others. He also has a weekly podcast that follows his research and is available at his popular website, GralianReport.com. Let me just crib from his essay, Big Buried Secrets, Giant Skeletons, and the Smithsonian. The debate over whether the Smithsonian has hidden evidence of giants in American prehistory continues to be torn apart by proponents from both believer and skeptic camps. Yet sadly, there is a question underlying the debate that is far bigger than even the largest giant skeleton. The question has long been asked, have giant skeletons been discovered throughout the Americas? And if so, is the Smithsonian Institute in Washington actively seeking to cover up those discoveries? Micah Hanks, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. Always good to be on with you, brother. Great to have you. Well, um, have you read uh, Dewhurst's book? 
You know, yeah, I actually had a copy of that, and, uh, you know, as, as uh, colleagues in this field often do, I actually uh, was on an ancient alien cruise earlier this year, and uh, my good friend Hugh Newman was one of the fellow speakers on that cruise with me, and I passed my copy along to him. Uh, so we, we kind of spread the, uh, the the good word in this field. and uh, But, yeah, I'm certainly familiar with Richard's book, absolutely. Well, before we weigh in on whether or not the Smithsonian is engaged in some uh, plot to suppress this information, let me get your take on the existence of giants. We certainly don't see them being exhibited in museums these days, but as I mentioned, uh, there are a lot of newspaper reports here in the United States, the New York Times and others, uh, that that uh, document these alleged archaeological discoveries. What do you make of those? Well, you know, it's a contentious issue, and we have to be careful in phrasing it. Again, you know, I, I primarily try to approach things from a skeptical uh, pers- persuasion, but but I'm not the kind of person, as you know, from me being on you know previous appearances on your program as well as others, that you know I'm not the kind of person who is a debunker. And I have had a lot of people who are what I would call pathological debunkers who have come after me for even talking about this discussion. Now listen, here's my, and this is just applying just very basic logic to the situation. If I'm walking down the street and I see a seven or an eight foot tall individual coming toward me, I'm going to think that's an extremely tall person. If I see a nine or a ten foot tall person, I'm going to think that might be giant by our standards. In fact, the seven or the eight foot tall person might qualify. Now there are people who exist on Earth today, and several of them, especially among NBA basketball players, you know, who are uh, sometimes in excess of seven feet tall. Right. But the thing is, is that when we look at these reports of supposed giant skeletons, the, interest, the interesting thing to me is that there are cases where there are, at least in one instance, um, in West Virginia, some you know 17 skeletons that exceeded seven feet in height were taken from a single mound. Um, statistically, this is very interesting, and there was a great article by Dr. Greg Little recently that appeared online at apmagazine.com, who uh, had talked about the fact that statistically this was not only significant, this was almost impossible in terms of there being 17 people who had suffered from something like gigantism. In fact, Little goes on to note that, well, there are probably fewer than 100 cases of gigantism actually recorded in American history, and yet the the debunkers, who again I think, Richard, are people who go into this, rather than being naturally skeptical like I am, they're people who go into it with the kind of preconceived notion that, well, this can't be, and therefore I'm going to orchestrate my argument around disproving it with the preconception that it can't be. These individuals would make any argument against this kind of a thing, and they often cite gigantism, apparently in absence of knowledge of the facts that this is not as <laughs> frequent an occurrence as we might assume that it is. And so looking at these cases where there are numerous large skeletons, they don't have to be anything particularly anomalous, but something between seven and eight feet tall, and maybe you know, 17 or so of them appearing in a single area, uh, maybe buried within a, a, you know, a similar period in conjunction to one another, uh, you know, even if that's just a period that you know, spans maybe a couple of hundred years, that's pretty statistically significant. And I think that the case certainly can be made that there were people of extremely large stature, whether that constitutes a race, and furthermore, as Richard Dewhurst and others have asserted, whether that is evidence of a conspiracy, since most of us don't have access to that information, I couldn't really uh, endorse that or say that we have enough evidence to support it, although we will look at evidence of actual skeletons, as you and I are talking tonight, uh, that are extremely large and that actually still exist in the Smithsonian's records, which I've actually uncovered and I mentioned in my essay in this new uh, this new anthology, new page books has put out. What is the significance uh, of these skeletons, giant skeletons, being excavated from these large earthen mounds? 
there are instances, you know, where some of these things are, are purportedly rather anomalous. There, there have been some cases, uh, you know, for instance, where there are, again, extremely large human remains, uh, purportedly clad in armor, sometimes buried alongside European kinds of uh, artifacts and things, which are sort of falling into the jurisdictions of what we might call out-of-place artifacts. The problem is that in a lot of instances, uh, it is probable that the newspaper reports of you know the Victorian era and on up into the 1800s and early early 1900s and even maybe up until the middle part of the last century, uh, it is probable that a lot of the and this doesn't just apply to the United States because large skeletons have purportedly been found in other parts of the world just as well. And so when I say we're talking about newspapers, you know, going back the last couple of hundred years, this includes England and other localities as well, Montpellier, France, as well as Castelnau, a couple of notable. Uh, skeletal finds uh, were actually unearthed there in France in the late 1800s. But when we look at some of these reports, we cannot rule out the likelihood, not just the possibility, that some of these newspaper reports were in fact hoaxes or tall tales uh, circulated by the dailies to essentially just uh, draw interest and increase readership. The problem is, is that, again, I think that the skeptical debunker will look at all of these reports and say, see, they're all probably hoaxes and there's no way we can prove that they are true, when in fact um, there are a number of cases that the newspapers actually reported, including the Graham and Chittenden skulls, what was known as the DeHart jaw. All of these uh, discoveries actually still exist in the Smithsonian's off-site storage facility, and a session card catalogs maintained at the Smithsonian Institute today actually still catalog and account for those discoveries. So not only do they exist, not only does the Smithsonian account for them, but the newspaper articles that were reporting them are accurate. And so yet again, when the skeptical debunkers come about saying, Oh, you can't believe any of these old newspaper articles. That's simply not true, and I frankly think that they haven't done enough homework in terms of trying to make comparative analyses or at least doing a little bit of historical research in terms of what stories are reported in the news from that era and which ones actually ended up being accounted for in the Smithsonian's own archives. Micah Hanks is with us, separating the wheat from the chaff as we discuss Big Buried Secrets, Giant Skeletons and the Smithsonian, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. We are back with Micah Hanks, writer, lecturer, broadcaster, uh, and we were talking about giant skeletons and whether or not evidence for such a a race of giants uh, has been expunged from the uh, official record by institutions like the Smithsonian. Uh, We have uh, newspaper reports uh, of um, excavations supposedly revealing skeletal remains of giant humanoids, and yet we do not see any on exhibit at places like the Smithsonian. Uh, talk to me about uh, the, the skeletons uh, that were discovered uh, in, uh, in western Nevada. I believe it's a Lovelock Cave. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a very famous story. You know, basically what, what this involves is that there is a, a native legend, I think, among the Paiute uh, natives in that area. And uh, what they have told about is a race of, of beings that were extremely large that were called uh, the Siteka. And uh, at Lovelock Cave, essentially there were a number of instances where there were extremely large people that were, uh, well, I say, again, large people, and I should actually qualify that statement because it's often stated in this discussion when we're talking about extremely large skeletons that we are discussing a race of giants. I think quite the contrary now, this is one of the biggest and best art, uh, arguments, no pun intended, that uh, the, uh, the the big-time skeptics you know, bring against this discussion, whereas, in fact, uh, I think that it's more plausible and obvious even 
that uh, what we're dealing with are reports of you know humans that were extremely large in stature. That to me is still of interest, and the fact that people dismiss out of hand that there's anything and you know of interest about extremely large skeletons of large humans is very curious to me. But uh, it goes back to around 1911, the story of Lovelock Cave. It actually began with guano miners who were actually uh, digging through the cave and extracting guano, uh, and they began to find buried in the bat guano on the base of the cave floor uh, a number of mummified uh, human remains. Uh, but unfortunately, because they didn't want to have to uh, interrupt the mining operation, the reports of the bodies that were being discovered didn't come to light until much later. Uh, some of the stories are pretty strange about this. You know, for instance, there was supposedly a local fraternity that obtained one of the uh, bodies and used it in some sort of a secret, you know, kind of a uh, initiation or something like that, which almost gets into the realm of conspiracies and uh, secret societies. Again, whether I can confirm that that story is true, um, you know, your guess is as good as mine, but that was reported at the time. Uh, some of the uh, the skeletons in this case, again, were anywhere from six and a half feet tall. Uh, according to records, that's not particularly extremely large, but they did have a number of interesting features that were not particularly characteristic of the indigenous people in that area, such as red hair and things like this. Now, it should be noted that red hair or pigmentation loss that results in red hair on bog mummies have actually been discovered in other parts of the world. In just what I stated, the actual cases where people have fallen into a peat bog and have been preserved in a mummified state uh, so I don't know that we can make the direct case that these people, when they were alive, were red-headed. Ah, but the I story see. of the Site Ka, according to the Paiute Indian legends, described tall, red-headed people who were also cannibals. And interestingly, anthropologists and, 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 and scientists who have actually done uh, ongoing studies at Lovelock Cave have found evidence of what may have been during a famine period what was likely uh, you know, bones being split open to extract marrow, i.e. cannibalism, that actually occurred there at Lovelock Cave. Now, the other important thing to keep in mind here is that the story among the Paiute is that these red-headed giants, the Sithekal, were forced into this cave, and a fire was lit, and that they were all killed in that manner. So it is a very compelling legend, and what is also interesting is that, yet again, there are beings of large stature that were recovered that didn't seem to match in all cases uh, the indigenous people in that area, but it did seem to correspond to the legend that the Paiute have about the Sitek Ka. Now, again, whether or not that's evidence of some sort of race of giant people or you know, maybe early explorers who were of European origin or something along those lines, your guess, again, is as good as mine. But it's interesting that there is a parallel between the legend and actual discovery of strange and, in many instances, very, fairly large uh, skeletons that were recovered there at Lovelock Cave in Nevada. Now, the, but the Sitek Ka, uh, if they did have, in fact, red hair, that would suggest perhaps of European descent, or, or, or am I mistaken? You know, I mean, I, I would think so. Again, what my opinion on that really is, is uh, knowing that there are other instances where there have been bog mummies with that loss of pigmentation that can cause kind of a reddish, kind of a copper or a burnt copper color to the hair, uh, my guess would be that probably during the preservation of the remains within the guano that piled up over time in the base of the cave, uh, that probably is what led to the pigmentation loss, in my opinion. Uh, but, again, this is interesting because there is still the parallel between the story of large people who were forced into the cave and a fire was lit and that these individuals were cannibals. And there seem to be real-world um, components that have been unearthed utilizing science uh, in the years, you know, actually probably the centuries that followed. So it seems that something happened at Lovelock Cave, 
and that if anything, and this is only one of a few instances that I outline in this essay uh, with regard to Native American legends pertaining to people of extremely large stature that existed in the ancient Americas, this is yet again a case where there is an, a local uh, tale of origin that is appended to reports and even the discovery of large human remains. Now, I, we've heard reports, read reports, uh, in terms of the Lovelock Cave case, where these individuals were 10 feet tall in some instances. But you're saying, no, six and a half to seven feet tall, which is hardly what would we, what we would, would, would call or ca- categorize as a giant. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a tall person, but you know, yet again, this isn't particularly anomalous. Now, I will go on to say, though, that among some of the things that were removed from the cave um, that were non-human remains, more importantly, artifacts and even articles of clothing, there was actually a sandal that was removed that was, oh, it was huge. I mean, I think this thing would have been, you know, comparable to a size 15 shoe uh, in American male shoe sizes today. And so, uh, you know, there have been some that have speculated that, again, there's evidence that some of the bodies that were recovered there at Lovelock may indeed have actually been larger. Uh, again, you know, I tried to err on the uh, the... The, the side of the more conservative estimates, and we know that there were at least six and a half to seven foot tall skeletons that were found, but there is the possibility that some were larger than that. And what's curious, I understand that this was this uh, these artifacts were turned over to the University of California. So what happened to them? Why don't we see the remains from Lovelock Cave on exhibit somewhere? You know, I think some of them are actually still kept, and if I remember correctly, a private museum has some of them. And then again, I think that some of them, as you would mentioned, I think it was the University of California uh, that uh, acquired certain uh, artifacts. Uh, those, again, have kind of vanished from public view. And this is one of the things that has continued to kind of fuel speculation about whether there's a cover-up, because it seems that if there were again, evidence of people that were extremely large that inhabited the Americas in ancient times, uh, this would be the kind of thing that, I mean, would just be, you know, literally not just displayed, but maybe brandished by museums. I mean, they would they would want to, to show this off. This would be incredibly telling, and this would, in, in many ways, rewrite history, uh, not just for the Americas, but other parts of the world where these purported skeletal finds have been uncovered. And so why aren't these things actually put forth more often? So uh, it's natural that people, and, and again, you know, this uh, this idea of there being a cover-up by uh, institutions, namely the Smithsonian Institute, uh, which essentially is an independent federal agency, uh, this idea is often attributed to a friend of mine, David Hatcher Childress. Many of your listeners know David. Yes, know David well. In fact, David uh, was on the uh, Ancient Alien Cruise with me back in January, along with Hugh Newman, and we had a long talk about all this. Um, but, but even before David Childress had begun writing articles, one that appeared in Nexus magazine a couple of decades ago, I think, about this subject and the idea that the Smithsonian was, if not covering up at very least, keeping certain information from you know being readily available to the public. Ivan Sanderson, I think, going back to the 1960s, had said much the same thing. He had received a report of the very same sort of things that we're discussing here with Lovelock Cave. There was on the island of Shimya, I think, in the Aleutian Islands uh, during the Second World War. While a uh, runway for an airbase was being constructed, uh, large skeletons were on Earth. In fact, um, and this is interesting, Richard, I found kind of a counterpart to that story because Sanderson had received a letter from someone who said that he'd seen the, the skeletons. Some of them were over eight feet tall. Uh, some of them had been, the skulls had been trepanned, which means that there'd been a hole drilled in the top, and this is something that many ancient cultures practiced for different reasons, uh, medical, spiritual, otherwise. But uh, Sanderson had been fascinated with this and was convinced that there had indeed been something that took place, but that when, again, this 
this informant of his who had told him about the instance there on, on Shimya uh, was asked where the, the bodies ended up being taken. Uh, it was said that the Smithsonian recovered them, and after Sanderson made personal inquiries to try and locate the skeletons, he and colleagues as well, none of them could seem to get an answer from the Smithsonian about the receipt of or the present whereabouts of those skeletons. However, um, a research associate of mine and I did manage to actually find in the accession card catalog with the Smithsonian at least one instance where Dr. Herdlicka, whose name pops up a lot, especially in the early part of the last century in relation to these large skeletal remains and the finds and discoveries of them, uh, Dr. Herdlicka had actually appeared and uh, on one of the accession cards, it was noted that he was the discoverer of a large um, skeletal, uh, if not just the skull, also parts of the uh, the skeleton of a large individual that appeared uh, somewhere on Aleutian Islands in a cave where there were mummies said to be found. So interestingly, yet again, the Smithsonian does seem to have records of large human skeletons that were found in that general locality, and I think that kind of vindicates Sanderson, but it also shows that the allegations of this cover-up go back much further, decades, in fact, maybe half a century or so. So is there a conspiracy? I really personally, Richard, don't think that there is. I think it is strange that this information isn't more, um, uh, you know, touted and that the in, uh, institutions and agencies that have it don't, uh, you know, they aren't more forthcoming with it. That's maybe the greatest uh, mystery, but it seems that they do still have the information and that there's, you know, verifiable evidence of it. Well, I, I, I'm thinking about someone like um, Michael Cremo, who has documented uh, these anomalous artifacts located in strata, uh, millions of years old, but these are modern uh, relics um, that almost look like, you know, a, a sphere that looked like it was machined uh, or, uh, you know, a, a modern type of shoe found in, in strata hundreds of thousands of years uh, before, you know, modern man was walking upon the earth. And uh, this, you know, we're familiar with his work, uh, Forbidden Archaeology. And again, we don't see these things uh, in in museums because, and, and perhaps there's an argument that can be made, they don't fit with the sort of the official orthodox view of man's origin. Uh, so is it possible that, let's say, for example, someone unearthed uh, giant uh, skeletons? We have cases in uh, Wisconsin, allegedly, where these uh, these 18 strange uh, skeletons were something on the order of 10, 10 feet tall. They reported double rows of teeth, six fingers, six toes. I don't know if that's true or not. But you can imagine that would present a huge problem uh, to to uh, to a museum. I mean, what do they do with that? It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit very easily. And initially, when I'd come across so many of the reports that, uh, you know, fellows like Jim Vieira, Micah Ewers, and a few other individuals, yes, in fact, there is another Micah out there who is involved in this kind of research other than yours truly, although it's a fairly uncommon name. But, um, you know, when, when individuals such as those aforementioned, Hugh Newman and, of course, Richard Dewhurst, who you've had on the program previously, um, have brought forward so many of these old articles, not just things that appear in old you know newspapers, but things that have been published, you know, for instance, in the Bureau of Ethnology reports by the Smithsonian themselves and other scientific journals over the years. There are mention, and I would even go so far as to say frequent mention, of uh, anomalous characteristics like double rows of teeth, six-fingered hands, you know, things like this, trepanning. Uh, and when I first came across those kinds of descriptions. Richard, I, I would kind of go, okay, that just, you know, kind of strains credulity, uh, when in fact, 
it's more interesting to me now that I've studied this quite uh, quite a bit, uh, as was brought to my attention by uh, Jim Vieira, uh, that uh, he was approached by a person after he'd been giving one of his lectures about the subject, and the guy had said, you know, I was actually born with double rows of teeth, and so I knew that this, you know, could occur. And, and Jim was pretty amazed by this, as I was when I first heard it from Jim. Looking into it, again, it is a genetic kind of a, I guess you might call it a, dis, a disorder or maybe even a kind of a growth deformation after a fact, um, where certain individuals actually do have two rows of teeth. You've got to think about it, though. As crazy as it sounds at the outset, all human beings you know, throughout the course of their life will have two sets of teeth. They have the baby teeth, which around five or six, you know, fall out and everything, and then the adult teeth grow in. Um, there are certain individuals who grow baby teeth, and those teeth never fall out before the adult teeth grow in. And so this is actually something in terms of medical science that can be accounted for, and some people have this, and it is consistent with the reports of some of these extremely large, um, what we could presume to be maybe certain varieties of Native American bodies that have been uncovered that are extremely large. Yet again, also, uh, there have been instances where there have been you know, people who have a sixth finger. If I remember correctly, one of the famous blues guitarists, Clarence Gatemouth Brown, I believe was one of those who actually had that uh, characteristic. Um, so there are individuals who have all those kinds of things that are described in some of the giant skeleton reports, and maybe they aren't as uncommon as they seem at first. All right, uh, Micah, stay where you are. We'll take a timeout, come back, and continue to talk about strange skulls, large uh, giant skeletons, and uh, whether or not the Smithsonian is engaged in a cover-up. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Micah Hanks is with us. He is a contributor to a new anthology entitled Lost Secrets of the Gods, the latest evidence and revelations on ancient astronauts, precursor cultures, and secret societies. Uh, interesting um, um, unfinished meditation uh, from Abraham Lincoln when he visited Niagara Falls in the autumn of 1848. Lincoln was campaigning at the time for Whig presidential candidate Zachary Taylor in Massachusetts. And on the way home to Illinois... He visited Niagara Falls, found the site so impressive he started writing about it. And here he, he writes, It calls up the indefinite past, when Columbus first sought this continent, when Christ suffered on the cross, when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, nay, even when Adam first came from the hand of his maker. Then, as now, Niagara was roaring here. The eyes of that species of extinct giants, whose bones fill the mounds of America, have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Micah, pretty interesting uh, piece of writing there from Honest Abe. What do you make of that? He talks about the eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America. What was he talking about? That's a good question. You know, as a matter of fact, I've got to be honest, I'm not familiar with that quote, and uh, I find it utterly fascinating. Uh, I can only assume that it probably takes into consideration uh, some of the reports of the day, uh, that obviously had, uh, you know, gotten enough attention that even uh, the President of the United States in that instance, you know, would uh, would comment on that. And interestingly, this is a whole different discussion we could probably have. Maybe we'll wait until the next election, but uh, at least here in the States. But, uh, you know, there have been a number of instances where Presidents of the United States have, you know, commented on or expressed interest in various anomalous things. Uh, I believe that uh, Lincoln had also engaged in seances, um, especially after the uh, the death of his son, and so I'm not surprised that he would also go on to comment on uh, you know purported finds of uh, giant humans that existed in the ancient Americas. That's right. Mary Todd Lincoln was, I believe, a spiritualist and and held many seances. I, I didn't know that uh, Abraham Lincoln participated. 
and of course, yes, we had the uh, uh, former President Clinton on uh, Jimmy Kimmel talking about Area 51 and Roswell. There's a whole, there's a, there's a, a great book there for you, Micah. Oh yeah, well you know, and of course you know, uh, UFO researcher Grant Cameron has done a lot of. Yes. Uh, looking into uh, presidents who have looked into the UFO thing, but it's not just UFOs. I mean, you could talk about Teddy Roosevelt and his claims of something that many interpret as being a Bigfoot encounter. Yeah, there are a lot of directions you could go with something like that. Uh, when you were researching this, did you find uh, any documentation at the Smithsonian uh, that corroborated some of these newspaper accounts of uh, skeletal remains, let's say in excess of seven and a half feet tall? Then you we're know, getting into real giant territory. Yeah, that's a, you know, a few things I'd like to say about that. The majority um, actually uh, typically pertain either to seven uh, to seven and a half or maybe eight foot tall skeletons, or we're dealing with incomplete uh, recovered remains. For instance, you know, just a skull that was not found in conjunction with a large body. But, uh, you know, one of the notable instances that um, is kept in the accession card catalog at the Smithsonian and accounts for a large specimen that not only was mentioned in newspaper reports of the day, but also which is still described as existing on the off-site storage facility that the Smithsonian houses, um, one that is known as the Graham Skull. Uh, this, uh, I've, and I've actually managed to find some really nice photographs of that, uh, again, with the help of a research assistant of mine who, due to his uh, position in government, uh, prefers not to uh, to be entirely forthcoming with his involvement and who he is. That may sound very clandestine and even secretive or suspicious to some, it being the conspiracy show. But, I mean, there are many people, Richard, and I'm, I'm in, frequently in contact with him. In fact, every week, members of the science community, the academic community, you know, members of uh, you know, different government agencies and things like that. And I'm not talking about like CIA and FBI and intelligence, but I'm talking about people who work in positions where if they expressed openly having an interest in these kind of subjects, it would be compromising to their employment. Sure, career suicide, absolutely. It has nothing to do with, with uh, uh, you know, shadowy figures lurking over them and so forth. It's just, uh, it's not something you discuss over the water cooler. It's not, and unfortunately, and I say that because, you know, there are people who I wish I could give more credit for their assistance with these things. But again, in this modern digital age, you can request things without ever having to travel to the Smithsonian, which is the route which I had taken along with the assistance of a research associate who is one of these clandestine but, you know, very honorable people I'm, I'm mentioning who prefer to go anonymously about their business and trying to find the truth. So the Graham Skull, and I think we've got to go to a break, but I'll just say this. It's a single skull that was found, but it was so large, it's, I believe maybe to date still the largest human skull on record with about a 2,100 cubic centimeter brain capacity. Th those are some of the kinds of things that, you know, still exist with the Smithsonian. But again, we can't determine the height because the entire body wasn't recovered. All right, more of my conversation with Micah Hanks when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. Welcome back. Micah Hanks stays with us. Um, the biblical accounts of, of giants, uh, the Bible is filled with stories of, uh, of uh, giants that roamed the land, and, you know, not just uh, uh, Goliath and his brothers. Uh, you know, we're told that there were entire villages that were inhabited uh, by giants. Do you think that we're talking about the same sort of thing uh, when it comes to the Bible, that, that we're talking about individuals that may have been seven, seven and a half feet tall, or are we actually talking about a, a, a separate race? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. With regard to the Bible accounts, uh, you know, I think that often there are, uh, you know, interesting blends of what are probably cultural memories and maybe some, you know, something along the lines of what today we could call pseudo-historical accounts that are blended with a fair 
helping of mythology just as well. And I think even our biblical scholars, you know, recognize that kind of a thing. Uh, and that doesn't detract, for instance, from, you know, if you, if you were a person of religious persuasion, my father being a priest himself, uh, that doesn't detract from the message of the gospel, you know. But I think that we have to look carefully at, especially with the Old Testament, the way that mythology comes into play with these sorts of things. Uh, uh, you know, as well as, you know, for instance, legends of like the Nephilim and things like that, which many actually use as the justification for there being not only a race of giants, but perhaps some sort of an actual extraterrestrial component to this. I think that that's kind of the essence of that legend. Whereas, quite the contrary, I think that uh, probably the source of the legends of extremely large people, Richard, are in in essence, actually, they stem from, you know, stories of very large people and the actual existence of very large people. Um, you know, there are actual, in anthropological studies, we look at the ancient lineage of our ancestors and, and very varieties of humans who have come and gone in different parts of the world before us. And we look at something like Meganthropus, which, especially in parts of Africa, went through a period where seven feet tall was normal for, for the, this particular uh, species. Uh, Paranthropus and, and certain other hominids were also extremely large and went through periods where they were you know, larger than average humans today. Uh, and when it comes to you know, defining what is a giant, often when we talk about, again, seven or eight foot tall you know, human remains, uh, an argument that the, the skeptical debunkers will typically say is this needs to stop. We can't keep calling these things giants. There's one individual who's come after me uh, you know, several times and even written entire, entire articles with titles like Micah Hanks and the Giant Skeleton Conspiracy, although I'm not a person who is advocating there being a conspiracy to cover these things up. I'm just trying to find actual data that backs up the reports of anomalously large remains. Is that Jason Colavito? Uh, you know, I can actually say that it is, and, and I'll tell you this, too, not just to toss a disclaimer out there. Uh, I respect Jason's writing and his work. I enjoyed his writing a lot, um, especially before he began to write those articles and everything, and I'd offered a rebuttal to some statements he had made uh, about a year ago to Jim Vieira, and he came after me, and of course, you know, unfortunately, the only thing I don't like about the way that Jason writes is that he tends to take an extremely, not just a dismissive attitude, which I think is really okay if what is being written about needs to be dismissed, but he also takes kind of a nasty tone and, and, and has to be derisive and, and frankly just very unfriendly at times. I try not to be rude uh, when I'm rebutting somebody's argument, and, and Jason does tend to do that, but I still think that as a researcher, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I do research or, or rather respect his writing a lot and also his perspectives, even though I don't agree with all of them. Now, that said... He would tell you, for instance, he and many others, that these giants, as we call them, and I put up air quotes, aren't really giants at all because there have been people in modern times who exist who are those sizes. But if indeed anything taller than about 8 foot 11 comes about, this, I think, is an exception we have to take into consideration. And I use that particular height because, again, Robert Wadlow, the tallest man in modern times that we've accounted for, uh, was 8 foot 11 uh, in, in his lifetime at his tallest. When we find people who are supposedly 9 and 10 feet tall, as some of the skeletal remains purportedly recovered from certain burial mounds have been described as being, if there is truth to those reports, these are indeed extremely large humans, much larger than even anomalously large people suffering from things like acromegaly and gigantism that we can account for today. And I think that those things should warrant further inquiry, but unfortunately, yet again, there's an ideological attitude toward this, as I'm sure you've seen, Richard, where people seem to want to you know, sweep it under the rug and, and, and essentially uh, just be rude to people who even try and make the case that maybe there's something worth looking at. That's really all I'm trying to say. Well, the, the, this ideological uh, battle that you speak of, I, that is, is that not at the root of the conspiracy theory 
that the, the, the Smithsonian and others, uh, other institutions, are trying to suppress this information because it comes down to ideology. Yeah, I think that you're you're absolutely right, actually, um, and, and that's a great observation there, my friend. Uh, you know, by the same token, another reason, and it's not to say that I would say, for instance, that you know, in certain instances there is evidence of a cover-up, but I dismiss that so that I'm, you know, apparently coming across as seeming more credible to skeptics. I'm not saying that by any means, but I will say that I'm careful to look at data and interpret it as being evidence of some sort of a grand dark conspiracy. Because if there is not clear evidence for that, and in many instances I look at uh, stories and I find it to be quite the contrary, if we cannot find hard evidence of an absolute cover-up of certain data, then I don't think that we can you know, make the claim we should, because I think that, that does weaken our argument. Uh, in essence, it kind of accounts for, well, we can't show you this or that because somebody's keeping it from us, and therefore, that of course we can't provide you with proof. You know, I think we should dig around and, and do as I have done and, and many of my colleagues have done, and try and actually find that, that evidence, whether it be in newspaper clippings, whether that be in you know, Smithsonian journals, or more importantly, uh, if we can find, you know, again, comparisons between a variety of sources that all acknowledge the same sort of thing, is, as I've you know, said that there are still instances, Graham, Chittenden, Schools, DeHart, Jaw, some of these uh, you know, relic finds that have turned up in the accession card catalog in which we know the Smithsonian has, a, and, and has accounted for. So now whether they could be called a race of giants, whether you choose to call a person who's between 8 and 10 feet tall a giant at all. You know, I think that, unfortunately, there's a bit of a semantic argument right there, which again comes back to that ideology. But to me, those are pretty large, and I think that at very least, they are probably the source for the legends of giants that we hear about in Native American traditions. If the Smithsonian has documentation uh, of these finds, where are the where are the bones? Are they are they? Is it possible that they're they're sitting in a warehouse somewhere. Yeah, it certainly is, and I think that when you, <laughs> when we talk about that, people kind of envision like Indiana Jones, you know, this this warehouse where all the great relics of humankind and history are kept, you know, religious artifacts, things like this. In, in truth, we know though, based on the, the records kept in the accession card catalog at the Smithsonian, that the Graham School and others are kept in the off-site uh, storage facility that the Smithsonian utilizes for storage of certain things. What's interesting to me is, yet again, I mean, something that is so um, potentially interesting, I don't see why it's not put on display or, or, or more uh, publicly made available, I guess, uh, than they are, uh, that they are stashed away in a, in a, in a warehouse. Uh, again, I don't think that that's evidence of a conspiracy, but it is a little odd that these extremely large human remains, and again, keeping in mind, that I believe that the Graham skull at 2,100 cubic centimeters uh, cranial capacity, I think, is still among, if not the largest on record ever found in the Americas. Um, the fact that something like that, there are photos that exist of it, but that it's not something that is readily enough available that people generally know about it, that's a little strange to me, and I'll at least acknowledge that. <laughs> uh, one of the other uh, difficulties in excavating these, uh, these skeletons, uh, at least according to uh, Richard Dewhurst, has to do with uh, certain laws uh, in the United States regulating, uh, I guess, archaeological digs in ancient uh, Indian burial uh, sites. Uh, in other words, they can't, they can't excavate these bones. They have to be l left in situ. Uh, did you uh, come across any, any reports about that? Yeah, I certainly have. And, uh, you know, this is something that even outside the realm of the study of, of you know, large skeletons uh, has been a bit of an issue because there have been um, what are apparently um, anomalous 
human remains that have been discovered in parts of the Americas. One which um, I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, that was attributed to this, but it was basically a human who was found to be uh, rather peculiarly of Polynesian uh, descent, but was somehow found in a in a very uh, unlikely place and dating back to a period in time that was very unlikely for a person of Polynesian descent to have been discovered. Um, the the issue is that when again something like this is found and discovered, uh, you know scientists want to look at this, anthropologists and archaeologists want to look at this, and they want to say, oh my gosh, we've got something that may be a key to unlocking certain aspects of ancient human history. But according to governmental jurisdictions, again we have to take into consideration uh, indigenous people, their values, their traditions, their beliefs, and um, there are certain legislation that does, uh, unfortunately, complicate the act of removal of human remains, especially when they are found on Native American land. And so, yes, that certainly is, whether you want to look at that as being uh, political or you know, cultural, uh, you, there, there are aspects, I guess, of both, but it certainly has made it difficult in some instances. And I think that we have to have both. I think we have to have a common-sense approach scientifically that can account for looking at what are obviously, in instances like that, um, something of great value to history and science, but by the same token, we also have to take utmost care to value uh, and and also share the value of cultural traditions and beliefs among different uh, people and different groups. What are you working on uh, now, the uh, Micah? Oh man, I tell you, this is a fascinating case I've been digging into. I've always been so fascinated by reports of, uh, and funny enough, there's a, a giant component to this as well, but reports of sea serpents. And, um, you know, uh, yet again, rather than just, you know, regurgitating all the stories that, you know, have been told for the last couple of centuries about sea serpents, um, I have been spending a lot of time recently digging into scientific journals and reports that uh, account for not actual specimens of sea serpents, but interestingly, uh, specimens that have been recovered and confirmed as being uh, the larvae of eels uh, that are extremely large. And the, uh, the, I guess the inferred opinion here is, in some of these cases, not all of these larvae are indeed eel, but in some where they are, we have to suppose that the parent would be extremely large, and so it's possibly an interesting window to uh, understanding some of the sea serpent reports of yesteryear. That's something I'm digging into right now, and hopefully we'll have a new book out about that before too long. I, I didn't realize that uh, uh, they call tiny eels larvae. Well, well, here's the thing about this. Leptocephalus is the term for, a leo, for an eel larva. And generally, if we're talking about uh, you know, something like a, a moray or a conger eel, which don't get much longer than between maybe you know, 9 and at very most maybe 15, 16 feet, I think the largest ones on record, um, the leptocephalus, the larva uh, of an eel like that, is going to probably just be a few centimeters long, and they're going to be almost perfectly clear, perfectly translucent. There have been in certain instances, even as recently as the last few years, I think off the New Zealand coast and in other uh, locations, uh, there have been leptocephalus, which are clearly eel larvae, but these larvae appear to be, you know, sometimes a couple of feet long. Uh, it was often said that Anton Brun, a naturalist in the 1930s off the west coast of Africa, found a six-foot-long eel larva, but I do believe that this actually was not an eel larva, but was actually of the nocanthidae uh, um, Species and was actually essentially the larva of a spiny snub-nosed eel, which is a deep-water fish that's a little more like a fish than an eel, still similar families, but probably not the leptocephalus larva like many had said that it was. And so there have been some who have tried to debunk the eel larva theory of sea serpents, but in truth, digging into the scientific literature, uh, Richard, I have managed to find 
a number of reports where undeniably eel larvae, leptocephalus, have been discovered that are anomalously large. And again, the question is, is this evidence of a species of eel that's much larger than anything we know to exist in our oceans? Well, I know, I know you wrote recently uh, one of your posts about um, uh, Lionel Walford and uh, having s- seen a 50-foot-long undulating serpent-like creature resembled a transparent sea monster. It looked so much like jelly, he could see no bones, no eyes, nose, or mouth. Was that an eel? Uh, good question. I will tell you this, though. He said that it was glass-like and that it appeared to be translucent. It certainly met the criteria for being some sort of a leptocephalus, um, but something that large, oh gosh, it stretches the brain much further than I think I'm comfortable to try and you know, speculate about right now. Something that large, I mean, we're really talking about a sea monster. All right. Well, I can't wait for that book to come out. We'll have you back on. Micah Hanks, thanks for this. Richard, always a pleasure. RichardSerrett.com is the website. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, and as always, follow the truth. And thanks for inviting me into your home, wherever you are. However you may be listening to this show, I pray you are safe, warm, dry, and well-fed. Just a reminder, season three of my TV show, The Conspiracy Show, debuts across Canada on Vision TV on August 11th at 10 p.m. Eastern, August 11th. 13 brand new episodes, including The Water Engine. You may uh, have seen the Stanley Myers uh, YouTube video where he, the late Stanley Myers, and we also delve into his murder, or whether or not he was murdered. Stanley Myers purported, uh, purportedly developed an engine uh, that was placed in a dune buggy, which he drove across America using only water. Uh, we'll also delve into the Marilyn Monroe death and whether the there was an, uh, a Robert F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy connection to her death, the assassination of John Lennon. We're also presenting an episode on Jim Morrison and whether or not he may have faked his death. That's Season 3, Vision TV, August 11th at p.m. Eastern. And for those of you listening in the United States... Some of our older episodes are now playing on Destination America, which is part of the Discovery Channel family, Destination America. And, of course, let me remind you, if you haven't already done so, please register at richardserrett.com. Once you're a member, you gain access to the members-only areas of the website, the past show archive, past guests, books and DVD features of the week archive. And, of course, you're also automatically signed up for my free newsletter, The Dead Drop. Go to richardserrett.com, click on the blue member area login button on the left-hand side up near the top. Uh, For those of you familiar with The Conspiracy Show, you know we talk a lot about UFOs, ETs, abductions. Uh, But admittedly, uh, the Roswell case, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, or as it's known in the U.S., the Bentwaters UFO case, they get a lot of attention. What gets neglected are the multitude of credible UFO sightings in Canada. So I thought I'd redress that tonight and talk about some fascinating UFO cases in a particular region of Canada, namely the Maritime Provinces. Perhaps the best-known UFO case to take place in Canada, you might even call it our Roswell, was the Shag Harbour UFO incident in which there was reported the impact of an unknown large object into waters near Shag Harbor, which is a tiny fishing village in in Nova Scotia, back on October the 4th, 1967. The reports were investigated by various um, civilian 
the RCMP, the Canadian Coast Guard, military, the Royal Canadian Navy, the Royal Canadian Air Force, agencies of the Government of Canada, and the U.S. Condon Committee. So we're going to talk about Shag Harbor, but that's not all. There's also been a number of intriguing abduction cases that allegedly took place in Atlantic Canada. My guest tonight has written arguably the definitive book on the subject of the uh, 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 sorry uh, the, the definitive book on the uh, subject entitled The Maritime UFO Files, which is a collection of some 140 UFO incidents in Atlantic Canada, some of which predate the famous Kenneth Arnold sighting of 1947. Don Ledger is a writer, author, pilot, and researcher. He's appeared in numerous document documentaries on radio and television programs like um, talking about the unidentified flying object phenomenon that has been in vogue since 1947. Don has given lectures all over North America about the UFO phenomenon, specifically the Shag Harper incident, which captured the world's attention upon the publication of his book Dark Object, which he co-wrote with Chris Stiles back in 2001. His current book is the mystery suspense novel Blood Shock, which can be seen at uh, Amazon.ca. Other books published uh, by Don Ledger can be seen on his website at donledger.com. They include the critically acclaimed book Swiss Air Down, the chronicling of the crash of Swiss Air Flight 111 off Peggy's Cove, Nova Scotia, in 1998. And, of course, the aforementioned Maritime UFO Files. Don Ledger, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm not bad, Richard. How are you tonight? Very well, thank you. Why is it that Shag Harbor doesn't get the attention uh, I, I'm sure you think it deserves, and I believe so as well? Um, actually, uh, it's uh, as far as attention goes, I think it's, it hasn't done too badly. I, I you know, it's probably not uh, uh, of uh, Roswell's fame and uh, uh, possibly uh, Rendlesham. But, uh, you know, it's been getting along pretty good on its own over the years. I mean, I've, myself and and the and uh, and Chris Stiles uh, the, on the odd occasion has been out on the road, uh, you know, um, uh, talking about the uh, the incident in Shag Harbor in '67. And it's a, 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 what's uh, arresting about the case is the fact that it had so much documentation attached to it. It wasn't uh, there's no doubt it occurred. You know, you didn't have to go uh, beating the bushes looking for witnesses or anything like that. They were all over the place down there. Plus. You know, the newspapers were writing about it. The Air Force was involved. The Navy was involved, you know. And, uh, you know, a pretty uh, pretty articulated case when you come right down to it. Well, it, it, does it not hold the distinction of being one of the, the world's few government-documented UFO cases? In other words, governments have admitted in documents that this was a, a genuine case of an unidentified flying object. Yeah, exactly. The uh, The... What was called the Air Desk in Ottawa back in 1967, that was where UFO reports would go uh, in Canada and uh, probably down into the States. And uh, but uh, and uh, this would be the last year or at least the, the dying months, you know, of 1967, early 68, uh, just about the time that the uh, uh, Project Blue Book faded out of the, out of the picture um, and they turned their... Um, their documentation over to anybody else that wanted to uh, to uh, take uh, you know UFO reports they gave up on them the same thing happened here in Canada which was you know kind of odd considering uh you know the uh, uh the, the both both governments had been heavily involved in investigating the investigation of UFOs since back in the late 40s and i suspect even further back than that probably right into the 
you know, maybe at the first of the se- first of the Second World War, uh, because you know what they call Foo Fighters and so on right. back in those days. But um, yeah, uh, strangely enough, it all sort of faded out after Shag Harbor and after the Condon uh, report down in the United States. Uh, that was an American uh, cop who really, you know, the military used that one to, uh, they didn't solve anything. You know, most of the cases, were, uh, two-thirds of their cases weren't solved in uh, the Condon report. And uh, and yet they said, well, I guess that's it. We've solved everything, you know, and they gave up on it. But they were just looking for a way to get out of this thing. And But uh, same thing happened here in Canada. So the UFO desk in, uh, in uh, or the air desk, I should say, in Ottawa, uh, you know, received the uh, reports uh, of this un- unidentified flying object fairly quickly from the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax, which was, you know, quasi-military, uh, uh, well, it, it, military civilian, uh, by civilian I mean uh, RCMP, and, uh, you know, ground forces and uh, c- civilian ground forces that would look for, you know, people that were lost or, you know, ships lost at sea and so on and so forth, or aircraft lost and that's what happened in, uh, back in, uh, on, on the night of October 4th, 1967, when this thing went into the harbor. Yeah, well, let's, let's spend a, f- a few moments. Uh, we have some time. Let's, let's talk about it in, in some detail. For those who, who may not be familiar with what happened in August or October of 1967. Uh, yeah. this... Well, it was uh, actually the night. The night itself was, uh, it was uh, a kind of... Uh, it was a UFO evening. We called it the night of the UFOs in the book. And uh, there was uh, at least uh, 30 that we were aware of, 30 UFO, uh, different UFO reports around southwest, the, the southern portion of Nova Scotia. And um, But uh, one in particular, of course, was, in, uh, you know, on the night of 1967 in uh, down in Shag Harbor area. Uh, a couple of fishermen were coming back from a... Um, a function in uh, Cape Sable Island at a community center there. It was a Wednesday night. Uh, it was about 20 to 25 after 12. These were two young fellows. They were only 18 years old at the time. And they'd been over to some this function, and uh, they had uh, one of them, Lori Wickens. He had his, his friend with him, and uh, three girls in the back seat. They were driving them home, and they were on the east side of Shag Harbor, heading into Shag Harbor, when they noticed the... Uh, a series of um, a, a row of lights in the sky off to the right side of the road on Old Highway Number Three in Nova Scotia, which is still there and it's just pretty much the same as it was then. Um, and, but as they as they watched it, uh, it it went parallel to the car, maybe up about a thousand or two thousand feet, uh, traveling with them, and then started to cut across the front of the car, you know, not close, but uh, you know, maybe about a thousand feet away. And uh, they were following this thing and trying to keep up with it because they didn't know what the heck it was. Uh, uh, Their guess was at the time that it was an airplane of some description. Uh, They went through Shag Harbor and uh, out the other side of Shag Harbor. It doesn't take very long. Even today, it's not a very big little. It's not a very big village. Um, And uh, on the other side of Shag Harbor, there's an area called Maggie Garren's Point, and uh, they crossed that point. And uh, on the far side of that, they just lost sight of it as it went down behind the trees and seemed to be going down at about a 45-degree angle. And they were—they thought it was going to crash into the harbor or the water just off of the harbor to the west side of the harbor. And they got past the tree line, and then they came right over towards onto the edge of the ocean. And um, 
there's a there's a, a building there that's still there today, which back in the day was a, an Irish moss plant. They used to gather Irish moss, and I, they apparently it's used to make iodine or something. And uh, when they got to this uh, uh, position, uh, there's a large gravel parking lot there, so they pulled in on that, and that's right on the edge of the water. And um, and they got out, and they saw this light floating on the water, or what they described as a pale yellow light and a dark object drifting or under its own power, uh, apparently with the tide. Uh, or they figured maybe it was under its own power, too. They were concerned because they thought it was uh, a, an aircraft. So they went to, um, or an airliner or something of that description. So they went, they got back in the car and went uh, about a half mile further down the road into Lower Woods Harbor, the next village down, and uh, found a payphone down there. And they, uh, Lori called the um, RCMP back in uh in Barrington Passage, which was on the opposite side of Shag Harbor from him, and said that they thought that they saw an airplane crash into the sound next to Shag Harbor. Um, Victor Werbicki was the um, uh, corporal on duty that night, and he asked him uh, if he was uh, had, had been drinking. And Laurie said, no, I haven't been drinking. And uh, was a little uh, ticked off that he was asked that question. They always ask that, don't they? Yeah, well, they did back in those days. If you read a lot of RCMP yeah. reports in those days, it always said that the subject seemed, seemed to be a sober, sober individual and did not appear to be drinking. Listen, we, we're coming up on a break here, Don. We'll okay, pick it up sure. on the other side as we continue to talk about Shag Harbor. And it wasn't just those uh, two fishermen who saw it. There were about, I believe, all total, about 12 uh, people yeah. who uh, who heard this whoosh, a whistling sound like a bomb, and then finally a loud bang uh, before seeing this object floating in the Gulf of Maine near Shag Harbor. The Shag Harbor UFO incident with Don Ledger. Back with more of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Don Ledger is with us, writer, author, pilot. Uh, He also... um, writes a regular aviation column and writes for various magazines. Uh, he's got a brand new book out. Uh, and this is a, um, a mystery suspense novel entitled Blood Shock. But right now we're sort of dialing it back uh, to 2001 uh, and talking about his, uh, his book he co-authored with Chris Stiles entitled Dark Object. And that is, of course, about the uh, Shag Harbor UFO incident in 1967. So we have about 11... 12 witnesses who hear this whooshing sound, a loud bang, and then all of a sudden they see this, some sort of a craft floating in the Gulf of Maine uh, off of a Shag Harbor. Uh, and at what, at what point does the Canadian military become involved in a subsequent recovery uh, rescue effort? Uh, yeah, well, that night they... Um because they'd ca- uh, the uh, the RCMP had called the um, Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax because not only had uh, Laurie Wickens uh, called in that he thought an airplane might have crashed into the sound, but uh, several other people around the area had called it in at just about the same time, and uh, he asked Laurie to stay where he uh, uh, to return to the uh, uh, Irish Moss plant and keep an eye on it. Um, sure, you know within a uh, you know. Very few minutes after this, the uh, other people started coming in, uh, you know, rolling into the lot and uh, and asking Laurie what was going on and what was that thing out in the water, I suppose. And uh, then the RCMP showed up. By the time they got there, there was at least a dozen people standing around. And, you know, during the, uh, the ensuing, uh, you know, 20, 25 minutes, there was as many as 24 there from what we understand now. 
uh, even one uh, of a former premier in Nova Scotia was coming back from, he wasn't a premier then, but he would be th- uh, three years later. And um, he just happened by at the time, was standing there looking up watching this thing too. I didn't know that until back a couple of years ago. But anyway, so uh, because the Rescue Coordination Center had been alerted, you know, who would uh, alert the Navy and uh, and the Quite often they alert fishing boats in the area too to uh, sure. go out and have a to search as they did. If, right. uh, which I, I found it kind of strange the similarity between this a UFO case and this crash of Swiss Air Flight 111 about how the thing started up. You know, with people out looking on the water with fishing boats and so on, and the Navy getting involved. But anyway, the the shortness because uh, you know I've, I've I've given lectures on this thing and I can talk for three hours just trying to get the whole story in. Right. But uh, so anyway. They did get a couple of fishermen. They went out on the water, and they went out to the uh, western approach uh, uh, past the uh, Megagaris Point, ran across the, the famous uh, glittery yellow foam, didn't know what that was, tried to take samples of it out on the water. Um, but this time the uh, Coast Guard cutter over at uh, Cape Sable Island in Clark's Harbor had fired up and was on its way over, and it took about an hour to get there. And uh, it came over with news from RCC that there was uh, no air, aircraft missing or anything. They do a normal search like that when anybody says they, are, uh, when there's reports of an aircraft maybe crashing, they'll they'll do a, an airport search, uh, uh, trying to discover if uh, an airplane is missing. And uh, this night they couldn't do the all up and down the eastern seaboard really of not just Canada but down into the states. Right. And nothing was missing, and so then that left the, the fishermen. By this time, there were six boats out there, plus the Coast Guard cutter, uh, wondering, well, what the heck were they looking for? What was out on, had happened on the water? Uh, before the uh, Mounties had left the area there to go out on the fishing boats, this thing had apparently sunk. Either that or the light went out. When the fishermen went out there and the Mounties went out there, they fully expected to find uh, floating wreckage. They expected to find... Uh, maybe survivors or even bodies. Right, of, right. Uh, and there were about 10 RCMP officers at the scene, were there not? Uh, there were three. Three. Yeah. Actually, there was four, but uh, the, he, he just happened by. But uh, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't on duty at the time. And uh, another one involved further over uh, across the province, watching an object, you know, maybe 10 minutes before that, heading over towards the Shag Harbor area, him and, uh, and uh, three game wardens. Uh, they rode at night uh, looking for uh, deer uh, deer poachers, or as they call them, or deer jackers down in this area. So anyway, the thing of it was, this quickly went, we quickly went from Wednesday night on October, you know, October the 4th into October the 5th into the morning on Thursday. And by this time now, the RCC had contacted Ottawa, Ottawa had contacted Maritime Command in, uh, in Halifax. Maritime Command, connect, uh, uh, you know, uh, alerted their... Uh, uh, fleet diving unit because they uh, thought they might be looking for something underwater and so it was Friday afternoon about one o'clock when uh, the divers finally got to the site uh, and uh, started diving in the water and they dove from about uh, one o'clock in the afternoon till six o'clock that night and they couldn't find anything on the bottom and were ready to give it up but the RCC told them to keep going until they were told to stop and they did they kept going right up until Sunday night but they never found anything, uh, and uh, the uh, story sort of ended there. Uh, but uh, not the uh, not the, uh, the UFO documents that came from the RCMP and from the uh, the military CFI, uh, CFAO, uh, which are called Canadian Forces Action Orders, 
71-6 uh, UFO reporting forms and uh, and uh, action orders coming from Ottawa to uh, Halifax and from Halifax to the diving unit and so on and so forth. So there's something like 30 documents there, plus the fact that the uh, Herald, uh, Halifax Chronicle Herald on Friday uh, put out a newspaper uh, uh, headline two inches high in red. Now this is the oldest newspaper in in, uh, in Eastern Canada and probably in Canada, and uh, these it was a very conservative paper. It wasn't a kind of paper that would do this sort of thing, and it had two inch high banner headlines saying maybe something concrete to UFO crash in Shea Harbor, uh, RCAF, which the the Air Force was called back then. Of course, is now, but um, anyway, so. This thing uh, after that point just sort of shut down, and then it went to the went into the story phase that we, uh, uh, as we call it, because we had no documentation, but we had anecdotal evidence of it from military personnel and so on of uh, this thing apparently going underwater up in towards Shelburne, off of, off the mouth of Shelburne Harbor, which is about 23 miles further up to the northeast and divers diving on a couple of objects on the bottom six or seven ships over, camped over top and submarine you know a, a couple of frigates um, destroyers I should say and even maybe possibly an American uh, submarine in the area as well but um, the um, it, it just uh, it just got so convoluted with uh, different stories and uh, from different people that it was hard to keep track of it well, and I believe the Chronicle Herald ran another story, uh, and uh, you talked about it being a conservative paper. The, the headline was UFO Search Called Off. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had, um, back then, the uh, the owner of the, the paper was uh, Harold Dennis, and uh, he called in Ray McLeod, who was the guy that wrote the original story that had the banner headline on it, and he's the guy that interviewed uh, Squadron Leader Vane at the air, air desk in Ottawa, who told him that, you know, he'd... Uh, he didn't know what they were seeing down there that night, but he himself had seen an unidentified flying object while flying a, uh, I believe it was a, a CF-100 at the time, back when he was flying. And um, so the um, the story, uh, uh, Ray McLeod was taken off the story. He wrote about three different stories, and then he was taken off the story because he was told he was scaring people. And um, which was a little hard to believe. We're not sure what happened there. Another guy was assigned to the stories, and after that, the stories just sort of went wishy-washy. They didn't have any substance to them. And um, the uh, the you know, as far as scaring people down here, I mean, people have been you know putting up with uh, dying at sea for years and years and sure. years. You know, fishermen and so on, thousands of them. And mine disasters and air disasters and all the rest of them and the Halifax explosion and uh, back in 1917, you know that sort of thing. So I don't think people down here were that easily scared, particularly particularly fishermen. You know. So why do you, do you have any theories as to why he was pulled off the story? Yeah, I think somebody, you know, maybe uh, he was, uh, you know, got, you know, somebody called, you know, maybe saying, well, you know. You're giving this a lot of credibility by writing about this in a you know a major Canadian newspaper, and uh, you know maybe you're not doing the right right thing here. You know you're going to get people upset and so on and so forth. It's hard to say. This has happened before. We lost uh, uh, a good investigator, uh, or you know uh, uh, a few uh, b- about a week ago, I guess Richard Hansen, who wrote yes, the Missing yes. Times. You're yes. aware of him, eh? Yes, died in his well, sleep. That, you know that's that's a well-known thing among. You know, it can happen with uh, 
with the news and uh, how these stories get pulled. It's happened in the States, and uh, it's happened here. That other book, uh, Maritime UFO Files, was a result of my my research and Chris Stiles. He had researched, done some research, told me about these uh, files that were available from the federal government through the library loaner system. And back then, it was about 7,700 uh, cases, UFO cases. So I got them, uh, uh, the uh, RG67 files, which are microfilm. And I went through, it took me three months to go through those. I, I was able to keep extending my time that I was able to keep them at the Halifax uh, Regional Library, the main branch. And, um, and every once in a while, I'd run across one that was peculiar to the Maritimes. And, you know, and Maritimes, of course, are Nova Scotia, PEI, and New Brunswick, and then there's Newfoundland, Labrador. Right. And uh, so uh, all of those, I, I gathered as many as I could. There was about 500 of them. Because of that, when I was going through them, I was thinking, my, my, you know, there's a story here. And uh, so I put together a book. I used about 140 to 150 of the best cases. And, right. And uh, that that resulted in the book Maritime UFO Files. Well, And, and what is fascinating to me is that, is that many of those... Uh, not many, but there are some prominent cases that predate uh, the 1947 Kenneth Arnold sighting, which is sort of ground zero for the whole flying saucer phenomenon. You go back to the late 18th century. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me about that. Yeah, that was a. Uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He was a judge, was he not? He was a judge. He was a judge, wasn't he? Yeah, that- Simeon Perkins. His name was. Um, there's actually a museum down in uh, in. Uh, in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, with uh, with uh, you know where he was a judge at the time, and he'd uh, uh, taken a report from uh, a couple of uh, men that were over in the New Minas area, which is on the opposite side of Nova Scotia and further up up the coast, you know, or up, up around Kemple in the Annapolis Valley area, and uh, having him, those two men, and a 13-year-old girl having seen a ship in the sky that they said was well seven, you know, five ships in the sky actually in a straight line traveling along. And of course, stylized with a a man over, standing outward with his hand pointing forward, and uh, reported this to uh, the judge, and um, and he wrote wrote you know wrote it up as a curious uh, item, and uh, we picked up on it. Um, the uh, which you know to me sounds like ships in the sky back in those days. The 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 the, the leading technology. Uh, Back in the late 1700s, would have been uh, you know sailing ships, and uh, or a hot air balloon, or a hot air balloon, yeah, at the at the most. It was just a curious one, and it was a way to lead off the book. And then, of course, you know, I had them up in uh, 19, uh, I believe, it was 24, 1932, another one in 39. Some of them similar, quite similar. The one in 1932 was uh, wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a Canadian pilot. It was a Danish pilot. We was flying up off the Canadian coast, though, um, and uh, spotted an unaffiliated. And this was a very you know just pretty much the same way as you would get the reports today of, a, of an ovoid object following along uh, behind him and uh, or coming up alongside of him. I believe off to his right side. I don't have the book in front of me now, and uh, it's been a while since I read my own book. But the uh, the object, he he felt there was malevolence there, you know, that uh, that it did not uh, mean him mean him any goodwill or anything like that. When he's in an open cockpit airplane, probably sure. freezing to death as he's flying along too back in those days. 
But uh, anyway, they went on from there, and uh, I, I sprinkled a few of those in, and then they pick up again back in 1947, curiously enough. And, of course, as we know now, these things seem to go back for centuries and centuries. Yes, but, uh, yes. The, the Ken Arnold uh, case just seemed to, for some reason, triggered in the public mind, and, and, and they picked up on it, and it just went on from there. Oh, I just wanted to go back to Shag Harbor for a moment. Uh, sure. We have a break coming up. But one of the, I guess, perhaps one of the missing elements in this story uh, that uh, that you know Roswell has that Re- that Bentwaters or Rendlesham has and some others have is uh, a cover up. I mean, there doesn't seem to be that that angle to Shag Harbor. Could that be one of the reasons? Although it's a famous incident, maybe hasn't captured the attention like a Roswell. Well, that could be. Uh, if there's any cover up, it's the cover up of the second part of the story, which is uh, uh, you know the uh, military witnesses that came forward after the fact. Um, you know, many years later, about what, uh, you know, that this thing, the biggest story took place uh, up off of uh, Shelburne. Uh, when it was seen know, traveling underwater. After, yeah, traveling underwater and going up there. And then they had, uh, again, the fleet diving unit was involved. And when uh, Ashley Christiles had a friend uh, who was, uh, his father was a trainer, uh, a, a diving trainer at, uh, the, at the fleet diving unit. That's the naval unit, by the way. Uh, in in Halifax, and um, he asked him if he could ask his father if he could maybe get the uh, names of the guys that were involved in the sh- dive down at Shag Harbor. And his father said, "Yeah, the guy Fenn Senior was his name, Guy Fenn, and he was a senior. The son was the same name, Junior there. But he he um, he got names, and he and Chris got the names. And when he went to check them out, uh, the first guy he uh, actually the first fellow was actually had passed away already from cancer." But anyway, uh, when Chris got the, onto the second fellow, he said that, uh, oh, yeah, but it wasn't in Shag Harbor, it was off Shelburne. And, and Chris said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, Shelburne. Shag Harbor's in Shelburne County. Right, and, right. Uh, but uh, he said, no, 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 we were off the mouth of the harbor, off McNutt's Island, Shag Harbor, or uh, Shelburne Harbor. And uh, so, uh, you know, it, he kept bumping into this story, and then I started bumping into it myself, and then some other people came along that were involved that were in the Air Force. Uh, a couple other military per- personnel. I see you've got to go there. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll take a time out, uh, Don. Okay, and uh, we'll con- we'll pick it up on the other side. Sure. The Maritime UFO Files with Don Ledger right here on the Conspiracy Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Writer, author, pilot Don Ledger is with us, and uh, his book is The Maritime UFO Files. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, about missing time uh, and and uh, the alien abduction phenomenon. First of all, with with Shag Harbor, I know that. Previous to the actual crash of this craft into into the uh, Gulf of Maine, there were a number of uh, about a dozen sightings or, or more. Uh, but did any of them involve missing time? Um, I, I don't think I ran across, or, or, or neither did Chris, across anything to do with missing time uh, regarding uh, Shag Harbor, but. Uh, there was a mention by a couple of witnesses. Um, there was some strange coincidences going on here, running into people years later that uh, who were actually from the area and had experienced some weird, uh, uh, had some weird experiences. I should say, but, you know, during the uh, during that time period, we're, we're talking about a week uh, from uh, you know October fourth uh, uh, to the eleventh. Um, in that area, there was a lot of weird goings on, particularly up towards Shelburne. 
Um, but uh, I, I can't ever remember anybody ever mentioning anything about missing time, although the other documents that I and and, and my own personal uh, investigations of some people down here, which it was an area that I wasn't even prepared to go into, Richard, to be honest with you, when I first got involved in this, and I've been at this 25 years now, but I, you sort of get drawn in because the the, the you know the character of the witnesses and so on. Well, but but and you do you do document some abduction cases in, in uh, the maritime UFO files, yeah, right? Yeah, and um, the um, and and since then as well, you know, I've got a really excellent one with a retired uh, military officer and his uh, driver. This again was in Nova Scotia, and uh, in the middle of the day during daytime, daylight hours when they're coming back from uh, Camp Gagetown and uh, down in in. Uh, <clears throat> In New Brunswick, you know, that's a huge training area, military training area. Not only the Canadian military train there, but the U.S. come up and train, and some European uh, uh, troops come over to train, you know. Right. And uh, But the uh, uh, and this particular one involved a huge monster, monstrous unidentified flying object uh, hovering over a small town not far from where, uh, an airfield where I fly my airplane. And uh, the... Um, the thing of it is, when they spotted the aircraft, uh, uh, him and the driver, they pulled over the side of the road, and they were in a nice clear area to see it, too. Um, the um, When he got back in the car uh, and, and noticed the time, he uh, two hours had gone missing, just like that. You know, they stopped to look at this thing at around 2 o'clock, and when they got back in the car, it was here, it was 10 after 4. My word. Both he and his son corroborated It, it wasn't his son. It oh. was a, a driver. A driver, a sorry. military driver, yeah. Okay, they both corroborated. yeah. But um, the um, you know and, and over the years he's asked me several times if I can explain this to him and I said uh, well I, I you know I've told you my explanation for it and he's had other weird experiences for you know in his life too so um, can and what I, was your expl- what was your explanation for it well to tell him you know that uh, you're not the only one to have this experience you know that this happened before when unidentified flying objects are concerned you know particularly. Uh, uh, you know, a monster like this thing they, you know, the thing they saw that day, and uh, they, um, it's, you know, you it, it don't know what's coming. It, it always seems to happen when you least expect it. This type of thing, as a lot of things do in life, I guess. But in this particular instance, uh, you know, there was just an innocent afternoon driving a car back, heading back to a base in Nova Scotia. I got to be very careful what I tell you here because this guy does not want his name mentioned in public because he's a public figure. Understandably so. Yeah. Yes. And um, so, and I've had others contact me about this uh, sort of thing. I remember getting back from a trip down to the United States, and I wasn't in the house ten minutes when the phone rang, and it was a call from a fellow in BC. Very uh, well-connected, highly regarded, uh, respected financier in, in British Columbia who was having these experiences for years. And he, uh, why he called me, I don't know, right across the country. He must have got my name somewhere. And, uh, uh, you know, I put him on to some people out in British Columbia to, uh, that, would, that could do some, you know, maybe help him, suggest some people he could talk to and so on. There's a, very few people in, uh, in this business that can... Uh, Really talk with authority about uh, you know like Bud Hopkins and so on. And, right, uh, and we lost him. Yeah, we lost him. Uh, so it was David Jacobs. David and... Jacobs is still going, and right. uh, Don Dondery, up uh, who's now retired and professor from uh, university in uh, uh, <clears throat> in uh, I believe it was York University, if I remember correctly. He used to uh, Bud Hopkins used to refer cases to him, 
but uh, and I'm no expert uh, I'm, uh, in that area myself. You know, as to doing, uh, uh, I've never done any uh, regressions or anything like that. I, no, I understand you're not a big fan of that. Well, uh, I I don't want to mess around with people's heads, <laughs> and there seems to be a real problem here. But there are people that have the ability uh, better 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 at it than I am. You know, more knowledgeable than I am to to do that sort of thing. So I've, I just I would rather defer to the experts, you know. But you said that you were hesitant to, to even get into the into researching alien abductions. Why is that? Well, because it's um, for the very reasons I just explained. I, I really have no expertise in that area. Uh, you know, when it comes to unidentified flying objects, I, I've got a lot of experience with aircraft. You know, I've been flying for about thirty-four years now. And I've been interested in, uh, you know, uh, aircraft ever since I was a kid. So I've uh, airplanes, 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 airplanes. But when it comes to abductions, when you seem to be getting into a psychological side here, and uh, not only psychological but the physical side of it as well, you know, um, that's um, that's not. I'm not. I have I have very little ex- uh, experience in that side of it. You know. I, but as I you say, it, it draws you in. It does draw you in. Yeah. All right. Listen, Don. We'll take a, t- a quick time out. We'll come back and continue our conversation. Don Ledger, writer, author, pilot, the Maritime UFO Files. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Don Ledger is uh, with us, and we continue to talk about uh, uh, maritime UFO cases. Uh, Don, how would you uh, compare, let's say, for example, your colleagues in the United States who are trying to uh, research uh, UFO cases and, and, and often, oftentimes uh, with FOIA requests and so forth will, will uh, really be stymied and, and um, have all these obstacles and hurdles to overcome because of the, I guess, the secrecy and so forth. How do you compare that with uh, – your work here in Canada. Is the government more cooperative, disinterested? How, how do you view it? Yeah, no, they're not more cooperative. If anything, it's, it's harder to get cases up here, get the files up here than it is in the United States. Their Freedom of Information Act seems to have more teeth in it than ours does up here. Uh, you, you have to <clears throat> what I usually run up against is the fact that, well, we're really understaffed, we don't have much of a budget, you know, we, we don't have the time to research this stuff so we can send it to you. And um, sometimes you, they would foot drag over the, the smallest little details, uh, you know, ship movements in Halifax, for instance, you know, going back to Shea Garber again, trying to find out what ships were moving around. And uh, we'd have to go to the newspapers to read the shipping news to see what was going on. But if you were looking for naval vessels and so on and specific reasons where they were going, what they were doing and so on, you just couldn't get any information. And uh, and. As far as I know, and I'm not the only one that's complained about that. I mean, you get people in all walks of life, uh, newspaper reporters, uh, you know, in normal stories, just trying to get information out of the government, whether it be federal, municipal, or, or provincial, you know, is always a problem. Um, but, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, in the United States, it seems that, and in England, uh, they seem to be able to get more details from uh, uh, from their government through their Freedom of Information Act, and uh, which we, uh, more so than we can here. Uh, and sometimes I, I, you know, I often envy them down there. The, 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 the detail they can get. Look, uh, the, uh, uh, the Black Vault. There, um, what's the young fellow's name? I've forgotten his name. Oh, Greenwald. Uh, yeah. He. Uh, I'm sorry, but I've been traveling for three days now. I'm kind of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Greenwald. Yeah, Jonathan Greenwald. I've known him for years now. I've forgotten his name. Of course, his old age as well kicking in here. Uh, but. Um, yeah, it, you know, the, uh, the 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 depth of the uh, information that he's managed to get from his government, I, I can't imagine that ever happening here in Canada. 
Well, in in Britain, for example, they had that big uh, dump of of UFO files. Uh, have we had anything like that uh, here in Canada? No. I, well, we the UFO files we did have were were there. Just nobody knew they were there to look for. Uh, the, when I I think I mentioned you know the RG seventy seven or RG seventy six files the um, the microfilm um, that we were able to obtain, which is a microfilm, and you blow it up on the screen viewer that you see on the uh, that you use in the old library readers. They don't they don't have that stuff anymore. It's all computerized now. But back then, there was around seventy seven hundred UFO reports. Uh, now I use quote marks on either side of my head for that one um, because um, the uh, some of the stuff that was in there was just complete garbage. It was gobbledygook. It didn't make any sense. Uh, it wasn't reports. It was, you know, some guy, for instance, wrote in pages. It must have been about 100 or 150 pages of just letters on a page, just just symbols and so on. And they didn't mean anything. But they went in. They got part. They got. They went into the files and they were recorded. Uh, after 1967, after the air dust stopped taking uh, the uh, UFO reports, uh, it went to the uh, to the National Research Council in Ottawa. And uh, they they were supposed to take the UFO report. So when RCMP officers or anybody else uh, took a, a, a UFO report, you know, uh, they do do it up triplicate, send it off to the National Research Council. The National Research Council would shift through them, sift through them. They had seven or eight scientists across the country who were involved with uh, uh, astronomy, look at them and and sift out the uh, what might be uh, meteor reports. So that they could uh, maybe triangulate, possibly find remains of a meteor somewhere. So that's all they were interested in. The rest of them, they just they just ignored those and didn't investigate them at all. So there was no investigation after 1967 at all, or, or say uh, the 67, 68, uh, early in 68. And uh, the Herzog Herzog Institute at the National Research uh, was contracted by the National Research Council. They they had a lot of the reports, but they were usually the ones that were the uh, media for meteor files. Uh, have have you noted any improvement in uh, in the reportage of of UFO sightings by mainstream media in Canada? Um, no, actually, you know, it seems nowadays that the uh, uh, the detail that you get now compared to what you used to get back in the day. Because uh, quite often, you know, if a newspaper story came out with a came out about a UFO report, it would might, could be followed up for days. Uh, the RCMP or the police they would uh, do a, de- a fairly detailed report, you know, as much as they could do with say one constable on scene or something, you know, in some remote spot, and uh, and write it up. And uh, and usually it, it it always said at the end that the matter ended here, you know, because they had no way of solving. It. They didn't know what it was. Uh, they, they, they might go to the Air Force or, or, you know, or civilian aviation and ask them if they had any aircraft over the area at the time. But, but they did that at least back in the day. But now you don't even get that. I've uh, run across uh, uh, reports. People will email me and uh, re- report something, so I'll contact. If, if, they, if, if they email me within a short length of time, I, I did one down here back in uh, 2003. I know that's going back some, but... Uh, it was a fairly detailed uh, uh, report of a UFO by a person down in Cow Bay, Nova Scotia. I wrote it up, and uh, and uh, it'll be in my, one of my next books. Um, the uh, of an object, and this is one of these huge triangular objects passing over a woman's house down at a place called Cow Bay, not far from uh, Shearwater uh, 
you uh, CFB Shearwater and uh, on the Dartmouth side of the harbor from Halifax. But anyway, this uh, this thing uh, I contacted several newspapers to see if they'd gotten any reports. And the RCMP, I contacted them. I also contacted the Halifax Police, the Dartmouth Police, and so on, see if anybody had uh, picked up on this one. And somebody called me back from one of the newspapers and uh, and uh, asked me some more questions about it. But that very next day, I was going away for on vacation for about ten days. And uh, before I knew it, when I got, uh, I ran into some friends up in uh, uh, Toronto area here, and uh, they said, "No, well, I see, uh, you know, you had that case thing going on down in Nova Scotia." And I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "It was on TV." I said, it was. He said, yeah, and it, 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 this thing really got legs. It was it was in the French newspapers in, in the in, in France. I mean, you know, in the English newspapers, even the Japanese newspaper reported this. So it picked it up on wire, right, online, you know, off the wire or sure. something like that, and it went with it. it. It's amazing how this will get legs because it had that little interest factor in there, you know, so a, a woman alone at night watching this thing cross over her lot with her. A uh, crippled dog who suddenly got up and ran away, frightened. The first first time it had run in in years, you know, or in the last couple of years, this type of thing. And when I did measurements on it, and since this happened fairly quickly, uh, before just before I went away, I went over and interviewed her. I did measurements, you know, the angles and so on and so forth to to, to, to get the size of the thing. Turns out this thing was actually uh, captured on. Uh, on radar and was on radar tapes uh, with uh, 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 Moncton Center up in uh, New Brunswick. And um, so it was a pretty good report, you know, and uh, the uh, uh, I've always uh, I've always looked, kind of liked the case myself because it had a, a report. But anyway, the, this particular object uh, over the lot, if you do the angles, you know, the, 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 the circumference of her, uh, the tree circling her house, and the uh, height of the trees and the the maximum level from the UF or from the radar report was able to determine this thing was probably about 3,600 foot, 3,600 feet on a side. Um, so you know, three sides at about 3,600 feet. That's a pretty big object. Well, we are getting reports more and more reports. It seems worldwide of these. Uh, immense triangular craft, so large that when you look up at them, they obliterate the night sky. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, what this one did. Hovering, almost like giant box stores. Yeah. Hovering. What? What is your sense? What? what why? Why the increase in sightings of these types of craft? Is this some sort of black ops uh, project, or are these? Yeah. Actually- see, now there's where my my aviation side kicks in. I know there's no way that the uh, Military have anything like 3,600 feet on one side. You know, uh, just you can imagine the. Uh, it's not only the length, you know, the, the length of the sides, but now you're going to have a depth in this thing. You know, it has to be a certain thickness in order to support itself. You know. What about a stealth dirigible? No, this, I mean even now the 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 biggest they're going to, they've got is about 250 feet, and they're working up to maybe 300. Now, mind you, back in the. Uh, in the Zeppelin days, uh, early Zeppelin, I think they had one that was about 600 feet long, but um, structured. But uh, these things, are, you know, were very unwieldy and so on, not triangular shaped or anything like that. Uh, there, and there doesn't, there's, there just is no military background for it, and and there's no excuse for it either. There's no no need of it. Um, why they would put all this money out and then they're spending all this money uh, elsewhere, you know, on uh, conventional aircraft. 
Um, I, I don't know. It just it just doesn't rhyme. There's no rhyme or reason to that, you know, to the uh, military, military, secret military explanation. And we've been getting that ever since uh, Ken Arnold, right? Right. Uh, you know, oh, it's a secret military aircraft. But, you know, how many years has gone by since that now? Almost 70. And but yet no military aircraft has shown up to explain that one away, you know. Or in it, that could do what these things could do even back in uh, 1947. Right. I wanted to get your take on uh, back in 2005 when former Canadian Defence Minister uh, Paul Hellier came forward to talk about UFOs yeah. here at the University of Toronto. Were you present at that? Uh... I wasn't at the meeting, but I I knew of Paul Hellier from back in his day when uh, when he converted the forces over to the... Yeah, not a very popular decision. No, it wasn't at that time. It wasn't popular with me either. <laughs> but I was really surprised when he... Came out, you know, and you know, I knew he was the defense minister. I knew exactly who he was as soon as his name was mentioned. That was, uh, you know, because I'm old enough to go back that far. And uh, but the uh, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was quite surprising, and it sort of gave the uh, Canadian uh, side of it uh, legs. You know, in the states, they, they constantly refer to him down there and bring him up. You know. And just to recap for those, Victor has, of course. Oh yes, well, Victor uh, is a frequ- Victor Vigiani is a frequent uh, a guest on the program here, and um, was really instrumental in getting the right honourable uh, Paul Hellier to come forward. Yeah, or the honourable Paul Hellier, I shouldn't say right yeah. honourable. Although he was deputy prime minister, he, he was, was a heartbeat yeah. away that from would being make him right honourable. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, and uh, basically, for those not familiar with what he said, that in a nutshell, everything we've heard about Roswell, for example, is true and more. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, that's, um, I would, uh, um, you know, it, it, the problem with Roswell is getting the documentation, you know, and, uh, or, you know, getting anybody to admit on the military side. But the thing of it is now, 1947, uh, you know, the people involved back then, uh, like Stan uh, uh, Friedman says, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, uh, pitting yourself against the undertaker, you know, trying to keep, get the witnesses before they pass away. It is. It's a race with yeah. the undertaker. Uh, yeah. Speaking of Stanton Friedman, uh, any word on his uh, his health? I know he yeah, suffered a heart attack. Yeah, I understand he's uh, recovering nicely and uh, in, in good health. Well, not in good health, but, uh, you know, uh, he, he's, uh, he's going to be okay as far as I know. I've got sketchy information from Paul Kimball, uh, who I was emailing with uh, back a few days ago. About, I didn't know myself until uh, probably about four or five days ago that Stan had had a heart attack. And, and because uh, he was a uh, going concern there. Yes. Uh, well, mm-hmm. well, we, uh, we we pray for a full recovery. Yeah. He's uh, one of the giants in the field. Listen, Don, um, uh, thank you for joining us tonight, and uh, congratulations on the uh, the new mystery suspense novel, Bloodshock. This is new territory for you. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I I like mysteries, and uh, I'm I'm actually doing sort of a a half a you know, book uh, book tour. I'm going to be hitting some of the bookshops around uh, Toronto while I'm up here this week. And I'll be dropping off a few copies, uh, free copies. And so people, if they want to ferret them out, otherwise just go to uh, Amazon.ca and pick one up or, or you know, or find out where they're there and, and what bookstore and no one. I'd much appreciate it. Okay, Don Ledger, the Maritime UFO case files, and of uh, sorry, Maritime UFO files, and of course, Dark Object, which uh, really uh, highlighted the Shag Harbor UFO incident. Thanks again, Don. Well, thanks very much for having me, Richard. All right, and my thanks to Tim Spreen for production. Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be with us with our monthly paranormal news roundup. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.
けない This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.